0: Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: Don't try to buy into the hype of what everybody else is doing just because one person's making a lot of money that you think automatically that you could be a real estate investor as well gain as much knowledge as you can about the specific sector or market you're looking to invest in.
2: Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm here with Robert Rivani. Robert's joining us from LA. He's the president of Black Lion, which specializes in hospitality focused projects and retail centers. Currently, they GP 13 properties, including restaurants and retail.
1: Robert, can you start us off with a little more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me. Black Lion, pretty much in a nutshell, we like to call ourselves the disruptors of real estate. And what I mean by that is we come into to markets that have been distressed or affected and, and try to change things up, whether that's hospitality buildings that have been empty for some years. We come and put our own spin onto things, specifically in the Miami markets where our focus is right now for, for the hospitality, which is the one arm of Black Lion and the second arm of Black Lion is these dominant power centers or shopping centers with major anchor tenants that haven't had any love for years. And we come in and do these epic remodels and and bring in the whole new slew of tenants that are anti-Amazon and that can survive in today's world. So those are the two focuses for us. Gotcha. So focuses on
2: hospitality and retail power centers with an emphasis right now on Miami. I've got to ask, you consider yourself a disruptor. How do you disrupt the hospitality industry in a market like Miami?
1: That's a great question. So up until a couple of years ago, Miami did not have a lot of food and beverage and a lot of hospitality that you're seeing right now, where you're seeing every single week, there's a new headline of a major restaurant group. Yeah, you had your your nightclubs and Miami always had that sex appeal, but it was always, I don't want to say always middle of the way, but didn't have tons and tons. You didn't have a lot of people from LA or from New York or from overseas. And as, after the pandemic hit, just due to Miami's regulations of being more open during COVID, you saw a swarm of people coming in to the market that were excited about seeing what the, the hospitality and nightlife were like there. The disruption part of it, I would say, is that most people would focus on building a high-rise and then the ground floor retail, which is most of the stuff we buy, is just aftermath. Versus you're starting to see that if you have a a major anchor tenant or a special hospitality tenant on the ground floor, that could change the dynamic of the building above because you could say you're part of that tenant's vibe. Like Vegas, for example, you, know, you have excess on the ground floor. People will stay at one Hotel because they're excited about what's convenient or right downstairs to them. So you're starting to see that play out significantly more in the Miami market where the ground floor is almost that draw for the rest of the project. It's not just a regular apartment building that nobody's excited about or a regular hotel that nobody's excited about. This does sound exciting.
2: Can you give us a particular example of where you've done this, where you have a first floor tenant with some appeal that adds to your ability to attract guests for the upper floors?
1: Sure. So there was a property, one of my first in, in Brickell, which is called um, Brickell Bay Boardwalk, which property was on the ground floor of a pretty beat up building, 50, 60 year old building. The space on the ground floor, which is adjacent to Marina was empty for 40 years or 50 years. Wow. Yeah, long time it was used as a commissary hall for employees, and it's right on the water in front of the Marina. I spent millions and millions of dollars of re gutting that entire space, opening up the exterior, opening it up to the water, and making it a space that people are excited about where you can actually get off of a dock, dock your boat, and come to the restaurant. We signed recently Delilah Hospitality, brands like Delilah just opened up in, in Las Vegas in the Wynn Hotel, Nice Guy, other couple brands. They brought their flagship into this building. I signed one of the largest nightclub and hospitality users out of Turkey, and we're in the process of signing our last tenant. And we're bringing a property that was once upon a time vacant for 40, 50 years to three brand new businesses that are going to change that home arena and that walking area of that particular property. So situations like that, that there's certain gems that people just don't pay attention to for for good or bad and can't see the vision. And that's where I come in and I reimagine certain properties. And I've done that on my Winwood projects to the South Beach properties I own. So it's just that reimagining of what retail and hospitality can look like.
2: Let's stick with this property by the arena as an example of what it is that you guys do. When did you close on it? When we bought it? Yeah. Five years ago or so. Okay, gotcha. So I'll get back to that in a second. You bring in three exciting retail tenants.
1: How much of the building does that leave you with for hospitality? It's actually all hospitality. It's three spaces and all three of them are hospitality restaurant tenants. Okay. So this is not a situation where you have a hotel style space above that. There is, but that's separate from what I own. So I, I typically, gotcha. when I buy my, my units, it's typically the ground floor. When I say retail portion of a high rise, it's same thing. I use it synonymously with restaurant portion. So you have the option to go retail or restaurant. My forte or my specialty is more of the restaurant. So that's what I decide to put as all three tenants in that situation. Gotcha. So
2: you're bringing immense value to whoever owns the hospitality space above you. Do you have any sort of arrangement to collaborate with them on the value that you're bringing?
1: Not yet, because I look at it as a partnership because it's a win-win for both of us. Them building something special above us or them being committed to keeping the building or buildings in the first class condition only helps my situation. For example, if a building doesn't run proper valet or doesn't run proper operations or it's dirty all the time, then it makes my situation bad and vice versa. They don't want me to bring a fast food shop on the ground floor of their brand new SLS hotel. So it's kind of that marriage because one of the buildings I bought actually is the ground floor of an SLS in Brickell, which is probably the best space in the entire country for hospitality. And they were very strict. They want certain standards and vice versa. That's why I bought it. It's because they keep certain standards of bring certain clientele. So there's a great synergy with, for both of us.
2: Gotcha. So it's like, you're going to do your thing. They're going to do their thing. You're both going to excel at it and through proxy or through proximity, you guys are both going to thrive and build off of one another's successes. Absolutely. That's awesome. Let's talk about the numbers on this one. So did you raise capital for this deal? No. No, you did this all yourself. Have you raised capital for any of your deals? Not one time. Gotcha. You said you've had this one for five years. It sounds like it's fully stabilized may not be the right word to use in your situation, but it sounds like you have it fully tenanted. Things are going really smoothly. Is your targeted hold period forever or are you planning to sell the space?
1: That's a great question. It's something I actually ask myself all the time. Blackline has a a much bigger vision at this time. So right now I own probably more of the ground floor hospitality than most any developer in the market. So it's becoming my specialties. Then a lot of developers are, are reaching out to me because they can see how quickly I can turn around these spaces. I have a vision of accumulating as much of this ground floor as possible and almost turning it into a REIT type of situation where if I decided to crown fund and sell to the crowd fund, I could do that. Or if I decide to sell to one of these big institutions that want to gobble up this much space, the only way to buy that many ground floor spaces is going to be through me. So that has a premium at the end of the day. So I just haven't decided yet because it's still in motion and we're still actively buying. I just bought another building about a month ago or so. So I'm still in buying mode right now. So right now the exit's not something I'm really focused on as much.
2: Gotcha. I'd like to put this in terms that correspond to other commercial real estate asset classes. Correct me where I'm wrong in summarizing what I'm hearing from you, Robert. You're in an acquisitions mode where you're going to continue building your portfolio that you hold privately without bringing in other investors until you get into the size of a portfolio that institutional players want to play in. Because when you get to that space or the size where an institutional buyer is interested in your whole portfolio, or you're able to crowdfund the portfolio, you'll be doing it at a compressed cap rate and a significantly greater return to yourself. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Correct. The gist of it. Yeah.
2: Okay. Awesome. So what do the returns look like currently on this property now that it's fully stabilized five years in?
1: I tend to not talk about returns just because of competitors and not having them know why I'm doing what I'm doing and what potential returns look like. So as much as I would love to tell you, it's part of the secret sauce. But look, I'd say the returns are great. If not, obviously I wouldn't be doing it. There's just a lot of hard work that goes into some of these buildings. That if we do have exponential returns on some of these projects, it's because we're doing things like, for example, the marina property I just mentioned to you. It took me three years to get this building permitted and constructed. It wasn't a I simple. That, yeah. I got a space and I, I turned around and leased it. And these are serious projects where you're dealing with like FEMA and hurricane-rated loads on buildings. Like it's it's very intense. So. I'd say that because of that higher risk, because of that higher volatility, in hand comes better returns, but it also has risk factors to it as well.
2: I totally get where you're coming from, at least at an empathetic level. I'm an apartment owner operator, cut and dry. We talk about all of our numbers. What we do is very easily duplicatable, and I've never spent three years setting up anything (laughs) other than maybe my college education, which took (laughs) four So let me ask another question that's related that doesn't get into specifics. As an apartment investor, I'm a value add to distressed guy. I force appreciation and then I cash out refi. That's my play. That is significantly more complicated to do in your arena than in mine. Having a value add or a burr style mindset where I'm gonna go in, invest heavily, knowing that there is a time in the future when I can pull all of my funds back out on solid long-term debt to redeploy into the next project. What does the capacity to do that look like in your space?
1: That's a great question. This is actually one of the most controversial topics I have with people on my social media platform. Oh yeah, because people, not specifically yourself, but you're being taught the Grant Cardone method, a lot of methods of Take the property to a certain value, pull out all your money, and then go on to the next because your money is just sitting there at that point. It's not your money; it's a lender's money, and you're making the difference on cash on cash. I don't believe in that at all. Not to say that I've never done it, but I don't believe that is the right method for equity growth. At least where I started from, I tried to build as much money as I possibly could in terms of equity because I think that equity is more important than cash flow. Because if you build enough equity to a certain point, you can just decide to hold and then it'll spit off that cash flow versus if you're holding on to cash flowing assets that are fully occupied, typically, I don't know about apartments, but I'd say typically your growth on rent is 3% a year, 5% a year if you're at 100% stabilization. So the ability to grow your equity is significantly limited And what you're doing by doing these cash out refis is you're starting to over leverage. Let's say you have a $10 million property it, it appraised for 15 million bucks. You say, hey, I'm going to go get 66% loan to value on this. I pull out the $10 million, I'm into it for not a single penny anymore, it's the bank's money, and then I'm going to take that money and go reinvest it. Well, now you're starting to over leverage. Now you're starting to stack up your debt. My whole portfolio, I'm at all times, I've never been higher than 50%, 45% loan to value ever, and I will never do it because I have a, a fundamental belief that debt's the thing that will kill you if a market turns. So I always believe in the 1031 method that if a property, for the most part, hits its peak, it's time to move on to the next deal.
0: We'll get back to the show. But first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. Are you a real estate investor looking to break in the multifamily? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 23rd through 25th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from high-level apartment investing experts while networking with over 700 investors. If that's not enough for you, Shaq, yes, Shaquille O'Neal, Barbara Corcoran, Jocko Willink will be there as well. Be sure to secure your tickets at mfincon.com to find out more. VIP ticket holders can rub shoulders with these high-level speakers after their sessions. For details on sponsorship opportunities and tickets, visit mfincon.com. Use the promo code BESTEVER and get $200 off your tickets. That's mfincon.com. Promo code best ever.
2: Robert, let me play devil's advocate here. I'd love for you to disagree with me, prove me wrong. Let's go at each other. Apartment investing, there are way fewer moving parts and it is a less volatile asset class than the kind of retail that you invest in. In the event of a market downturn or pandemic economic crisis, it's much less likely. That commercial multifamily would be impacted to the degree that the kind of retail and hospitality that you are doing do. Now, of course, there will be outliers in that, but across the board, apartments are not going to be hit as hard as other things. Therefore, it's much easier for us to have higher leverage because our cash flow is much more stable. And so long as we're fixing long term debt at low interest rates. Our returns are going to lessen in a downturn, but it's not like we're risking the portfolio to your point if we're doing 66% loan to value, getting back the whole 10 million, leaving 5 million in equity and making sure that we have positive cash flow and a conservative underwriting in the event that there's some negativity here. So I see where you're coming from, but I don't think it's necessarily over leveraging in the apartment space. Are you in agreement with me here? It sounds like
1: you disagree. I think you make a great point, and I can't sit there and say that the perspective you're talking about when it comes to purely risking a deal in foreclosure is not high in your situation. My argument and where I disagree is if you are talking about high growth situations, or if you're trying to equity build, that in the example we just talked about, if the a, a building is worth 15 million bucks and you have to take a $10 million loan on it, you're leaving $5 million on the table that you could go reinvest into another property and buy another $15 million building if you want to over leverage or you can buy a $10 million building. The point that I'm trying to make when it comes to this type of investing is that I believe if you have money sitting at a 4%, I don't know what a typical apartment return is, but lately it's been 4%, say it's a good outlier market, 5%, 5.5%. It's not main core area. On cap rate, sure. On cap rate. That if you're letting your equity sit for a 5% return, Where's your equity appreciation on that deal? You're sitting for a 5% return with 3% increases versus what is your typical return on a redevelopment of apartment? If you're buying it for 10 million bucks in two years, what do you expect to exit for?
2: That's a great question. I think the most people who are buying $10 million apartments right now are underwriting to a three to seven year hold and not being as aggressive as you or I would. Mm -hmm. If I'm buying an apartment building for $10 million personally, the way that I like to invest 18 to 24 months out, it will have to be worth at
1: least thirteen five four fourteen million. 14 million. Okay. So that's a great example. So pretty much by that example, you're saying, Hey, look, to two-year exit that my money to me investing $10 million is worth 20% per year, give or take. But we just said that if you hold it, best case, you're talking about 3% increases to 4% increases over the prior year. So you have a difference in a delta of 15% you could be making if you put your money to work and doing that grind all over again. That's the point that I'm trying to say that if you're confident in your business, which last year I bought and sold 260 or $70 million in deals. And people are like, why are you selling everything you own? What's going on? As so I said to them, look, if a property's hit its peak, if it's hit its market rent, if it's gotten all the value out of it, there's only one way it could go. The downside is a lot more likely than the upside and the upside's capped. Tenants have leases, what are you going to do? But the downside of a situation of a a hurricane coming or or something, some tenants leaving, there's an issue in the building. Your downside is a lot more likely than upside. And for me, like yourself, if you're not making 25, 30% per year, 20% per year, then what are you doing in this business? Go put your money in the S&P at 8% or 9% and leverage that and call it a day. That's my methodology. That equity building, at least when you're starting, like myself, I started with very little money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. That cycle to grow equity by holding and refining with two to four-year holds, you're not going to be worth $100 million for 30, 40 years. It's just going to take too long.
2: Robert, I started out thinking I was playing devil's advocate. It turns out I agree with you completely. I didn't understand the point that you were making. When COVID started, I thought I was being a thought leader, putting together a little book study, do it over Zoom kind of thing. And the book that we read was The Complete Guide to Buying and Selling Apartments by Steve Burgess. Any chance you're familiar with Steve Burgess? He's purely an apartments guy, but I haven't heard a single person in this space mention that book outside of my own book study. And his point specific to apartments is exactly what you are saying the time during the life cycle of the asset that you are forcing appreciation is the time at which you are experiencing the most growth and the faster you can force appreciation the faster you get that growth if you know that you can take an apartment building from 10 million to 135 and you can do it in 2 years or you can do it in 5 years your return is greater doing it in 2 years plus the kinds of returns that you can get during the forced appreciation phase, going from 10 million to 13, three annualized is a 17.5 percent return. Just doing that on all cash without any debt. If you're doing it with debt, you're more than doubling your money in two years, most likely if it's an apartment deal. Steve Burgess's argument is the same as yours for apartment investors. I like you, this guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> You've doubled, tripled your money already sell the building, 1031 into the next one, go get yourself twice as much real estate and go do the same thing. And eventually you get to the point where you may want to live on cash flow or relax, or you get to the point of a portfolio that is attracted to an institutional buyer or that can be crowdfunded the way you said. But the fastest way to get there is going to be to force appreciation, use debt specific to the apartment space, Use good debt to be able to double your money or better in one or two years, forcing appreciation in distressed assets, and then sell so that you can redeploy all of that capital to double it again or triple it again in the next two years.
1: For sure. And yeah. let me add one point to that, because Absolutely. a lot of people, and I have this argument with a lot of my friends, because most of my friends are in the residential game. I'm like, of well, the only ones are in the commercial game. And they sit here and brag to me and say, well, Robert, I'm making so much money cash on cash. What kind of debt are you taking on? Oh, we're getting this high leverage loan, 10%, where we put 10% down and 10% interest rate with two points. I'm like, guys, market turns one time and you can't sell these deals. You're going under. Great. Your cash on cash is fantastic. That is not a way I underwrite deals. I always underwrite on total cost and what my percent return on total cost is, because especially as you continue to exchange, you're never going to find that perfect deal because if you if you made extra cash, or you're going to find perfectly dollar for dollar. You should always go percent return on investment. That's the way I look at it for all my deals. And what's worked out for me, thank God to this point, but it's just a lot of people get hung up on this total cash on cash return. And that leads people to say, well, I can just take more and more from the bank. I can continue to take more and more from the bank and they get these variable interest rates. And it's scary. And some people get away with it and it's great. But what scares me is... When you go to exchange a property and you have to maintain that loan amount, you're going to have to carry that debt onto every single future deal. So let me give you a perfect example. A buddy of mine bought a deal for 10 million bucks, put a million dollars or a million and a half dollars down. And he's like, well, I could sell it for 11 and a half million bucks. I'm like, okay. He's like, well, Robert, I can make 150% or 100% cash on cash. That's amazing. I'm doubling my money in 12 months like, yeah, that's great. But when you sell it, now you have to go find $11, $12 million deal again and take that same leverage out and keep doing it. So you're risking a lot to make a little. I don't like that. That scares me when it comes to deals. I'd rather put 25% down. So I make 30, 40% on the back end. I continue that same leverage going forward more and more.
2: One last question before we transition to the last segment of our episode. Robert, we've been experiencing a growing, bullish real estate economy for about 10 years now. It's been really easy to make the argument, buy, force appreciation, sell, buy, force appreciation, sell, to grow and gain equity. Mm -hmm. We're recording at the end of April 2022. Interest rates have been doing crazy things for the last four months, especially during April. And there's a possibility that cap rates are going into expansion instead of compressing the way that they have for the last several years. Does that give you pause at all? Does that make you think that it might be a good time to hold on to your property, see what happens, see if it's better to wait? let cap rates compress again before you sell so that you can sell for a higher dollar amount in the future? Or do you say, go ahead and sell now, even though cap rates have increased? Capitalize on a gain that's just smaller than it would have been if cap rates stayed lower.
1: So that's a great, fantastic question. It's got multiple avenues you can go from it. So sorry, if this becomes a, a conversation, versus just an answer, but great. look, it depends on your own skill, right? For me, interest rates are spiking. People are already starting to see the, the expansion of cap rates. It's already starting to happen. My rates have gone up hundred basis points just in the past month, month and a half. So does that affect me? Not really. Does it really kill me at the end of the day when it comes to buying deals? No, because I'm not looking at it as buying a cash flowing deal where I'm making the spread on the debt and I need to hit an 8% or 9% internal rate of return.
2: You're not selling right now. So it doesn't impact your decision
1: on selling it. Does it impact your decision on buying? Well, look, to me, I like volatility. I like when markets start to get shaky because that breeds opportunity. If everything's hunky-dory and everyone's happy all the time and everyone's getting great returns and they're thinking that mindset, what if cap rates compress? That's bad for me. I did most of my deals in COVID. I bought, like I said, $260 million in deals and sold during COVID. I like those markets. When other people are fearful, it's probably a good time to go out and try to figure out ways to make money. With that being said, I'm also not a gunslinger and saying, oh, hey, we're in a really hot market. I'm just going to buy whatever because it's just naturally going to appreciate because the market's hot. So I'm being more selective when it comes to what I'm buying. I'm not thinking three years out, two years out. I'm thinking, hey, what in 12 months if a recession does come about? Because there is a strong possibility that it will. So I'm definitely thinking that it's time to be a little bit conservative and making sure you're not overstepping, but at the same time taking advantage of the fear that's starting to percolate in the market for potential new purchases and getting prices that once weren't available, available, not because people have that mentality of maybe it's time to get out because hundred basis points on commercial deals with huge NOIs makes millions and millions of dollars difference on the exit. I'd say it's 99% more likely cap rates will expand than compress in a high inflation market and in a high interest rate market.
2: Volatility breeds opportunity. For sure, without a doubt. Awesome. Are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. Robert, what's the best ever book you've recently read?
1: I've never read a book. (laughs) (laughs) What is your best ever way to give back? I do a lot of donations and events for children. We actually just do an event, a Harry Potter inspired magic show for autistic kids a couple of days ago for 30, 40 of them in a school and we're throwing a big carnival. So I love helping kids and giving back to the community. That's great. In your
2: real estate investing career thus far, what's the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson you've learned because of it?
1: Worst mistake I ever made is I bought a property in San Diego that I did not realize was on a Indian protected site where what I thought was like a waterway going through the property that was nothing was protected Indian land because there was certain things inside that protected creek and it ended up costing me an extra $2 million in construction budget to build over this protected creek and put in this brand new grocery store development that it had. So that was the biggest learning experience I've ever had to so make sure you check for that when it comes to land purchases.
2: The mistake was insufficient due diligence, especially in a high regulatory area like California or San Diego,
1: California. Yeah, like I had no idea. Like I had, even if I wanted to do due diligence, which I always do, you know, the phase one reports and all those kind of big Indian burial sites. I was just, what are you talking about here? I just, I was completely blown away. So it definitely educated me significantly. Makes a lot of sense. Robert, what is your best ever advice? My best ever advice, especially when it comes to real estate, is don't try to buy into the hype of what everybody else is doing just because one person's making a lot of money that you think automatically that you could be a real estate investor as well. Gain as much knowledge as you can about the specific sector or market you're looking to invest in. Like you said, read books or read articles or or try to find out as much local information as you can so you don't make the mistake like I just said that could be possible. So knowledge is more important than anything. And that would be my advice.
2: And Robert, where can people
1: get in touch with you? social media instagram is probably the best spot that i reach out to and have connections with you know my followers and whatnot great link to robert's
2: instagram will be included in the show notes robert thank you best ever listeners thank you as well if you gain value from this conversation with robert about the style of investing that he does um Forcing appreciation, being willing to take on high risk, multiple variable deals, and choosing growth over cash flow. If you've gained value from this conversation, please do subscribe to our show, leave us a five star review, and share this with a friend who you think would gain value from listening to this conversation as well. Thank you, and have a best ever day.